Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 112 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes to your eardrums with discussions about some of the latest research in the world of clinical dermatology, so you can listen to us instead of flipping through journal articles. And as a reminder, we now have some video content available on a platform called ViewMedi. You do have to make an account and log in. But after that, it's free and there's a whole bunch of stuff on there. There will be a link in the show notes. Also, if you want to hang out with myself and some of the other University of Utah dermatologists, every month we have a virtual echo session, usually over the lunch hour in Mountain Time. It's free to attend. You get CME. You can present some of your cases and learn some dermatology as well. There will be a link in the show notes for that as well. And today, we are very lucky to have one of our authors here with us today. This is Carlos Onebeer. Carlos, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me here, Luke and Michelle. It's a pleasure to be at Dermosphere. I love the podcast, and you're great. And I listen to you all the time when I'm driving to work, and Aww. it feels like I talk to you every single day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're very happy to have you. You've been around here a little bit before, so there's a bonus episode that we recorded back in July of 2020. We all remember what the world was like then. It sucked. And you and your colleague Andy Gorin joined us for a discussion about COVID, androgens, alopecia, sunlight, and more. You can find that on our website, listeners, dermospherepodcast.com under the bonus episodes heading. Also in episode 63 and in episode 29, we had you and or your articles on to discuss. And this time we're discussing a new article on which I am also an author. Thanks for the invitation for that, by the way. This is out of the journal JAD International. It is called Evaluation of Hair Regrowth After Minoxidil and Dutasteride Tattooing in Men with Androgenetic Alopecia. You are listed as the senior author. I'm going to let you pronounce the name of the first author just so I don't screw it up. Sarah Raji. I would have screwed it up. <laughs> So walk us through this, Carlos. Tell us about this technique and the results. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, uh, this is a, a drug delivery technique. Um, there are many types of drug delivery. Uh, we usually talk about the drug delivery when we're mentioning we're trying to, to get the medication to the either to the epidermis or to the dermis. And, uh, you know, there's laser followed by topicals, uh, some fancy uh uh let's say uh, mixture of liposomes or uh liquid crystals to enhance topical drug delivery uh this is actually the oldest drug delivery method known to mankind which is tattooing and this is invented uh, many many thousand years before uh the beginning of our count of age on the before christ and uh, it is done basically with uh, needles poking through the skin and delivering liquid directly to the dermis when you remove the needle. So, so basically, distinct, what happened? Sorry, this is distinct from yes. our microneedling techniques. I feel like I remember that from some of our previous discussions. So, can you talk yes. for a second about how those are different? And it sounds like you think tattooing is a better choice for drug delivery than like microneedling and then putting stuff over top of it, for example. Yes, yes, exactly. There is an article that I published with Soha, one of our ex medical students here. There was a comment about a, an article that talked about uh, topical insulin after microneedling. So, uh, here's what happens so when you microneedle, you create a lot of damage to the epidermis. And then when you use something topical, it penetrates better because the corner layer is disrupted, the epidermis is disrupted. But that's just topical delivery, right? Uh, while when you use the tattoo method, what happens, you soak the needles into the, the liquid. So basically the fluid around the needles, when, once the needle pokes the skin, the solid is, is there in the dermis. Once the solid is removed, there's this kiss, this, this sucking or a negative pressure 
that brings any fluid that is above the needle to the dermis. It could be air, like microneedling, or if the needles are soaked in liquid, it sucks the liquid with the drug or with the ink, anything that we can imagine. So let's say in nature, this happens with snakes when they when they bite, they release the 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 venom over the surface of the skin. Once the teeth come out, that's sucked into the subcuer uh, dermis. Uh, the snake's this is, kiss. This is very poetic, Carlos. We can tell you're from Brazil. <laughs> it is actually the skin that kisses the liquid, right? Mm-hmm. The skin sucks in the, the liquid once the solid. And and this happens with us. Uh, let's say if you have a needle that has a core or a, it has a hole in the middle, the kiss doesn't actually happen. You, you need to have a solid. Once it removes it, it causes the negative pressure. That's the hydrodynamics, how we explain how we are able to to tattoo, right? So sorry for my ignorance on the physics, but if you soak a needle in some liquid, why doesn't it just drip off before it actually gets into the skin? It drips off. It it really drips off. So uh, it it drips off, let's say, before getting to the, the skin. And when you perforate the skin, what happens? The liquid is not in the dermis. It's it's surrounding the needle. Once the needle comes off, then the liquid is pushed or, or sucked into the dermis. You get because it? you're making a little space there, and it has to be filled with something. So whatever is the first thing around will get sucked into that little vacuum. Perfect. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Could be air, okay. like microneedling. Yeah. So uh, anyways, this method, uh, a long time ago, there was a, a Dutch dermatologist who, who called this uh, dermographism which means basically tattooing. And he was using bleomycin. Uh, and then after some, some years, what happened after some decades, there was this Brazilian uh, dermatologist, uh, Samir, who, who started using the tattoo machines to deliver other things there. Uh, bleomycin, 5FU, there's some articles uh, about this. And um, I, I was a mesotherapy person, or I used to inject with the syringe. And I always uh, say, in, in, I give lectures about this and I was trying to convince the more traditional hair specialists in Brazil who are only prescribing oral finasteride and topical minoxidil to start to inject finasteride, inject uh, minoxidil back, back then. And, and there was a lot of resistance. A lot of people would say, why inject if you can take by mouth, right? Uh, and we we're combining them and having better results. And then when I started to transition from the injectable to the tattooing method, to the scalp, I started to see more results. And uh, we don't know how to explain this, if, if it's the microneedling combined with the medications or the level that we deliver, more superficial with the tattoo machine to the papillary dermis, while the injections, actually basically sub-Q or uh, deep reticular dermis. And then, well, anyways, so uh, currently I use both. I inject and I, I tattoo. But this is was a ret- retrospective a series of uh, uh, cases from 2016 and to 2020. Uh, that's when I had the sterile medications compounded in Brazil uh, in the, with a sterile compounding pharmacy. And here's one thing that I wanted to mention about this. Uh, we're using here uh, on this article, minoxidil sulfate, right? Which is actually the active form of minoxidil. And many people don't know this, but actually minoxidil base is a pre-drug. It doesn't work. So it needs to have a, a sulfur to the molecule so it becomes water soluble so it can work inside the cells and the, the channels and everything. Um, and actually Andy Gorin, uh, who you mentioned before, he's basically the main researcher of the sulfa transferase or how, how the, the body enhances or activates minoxidil. He, if, you, if you Google his name, you see tons of articles and I contributed with him on research on microneedling. For example, we understand that microneedling enhances the sulfa transferase activity. So it, it enhances the conversion of minoxidil to minoxidil sulfate and also topical retinoids. It seems to it seems that anything that we cause a little inflammation to the skin 
enhances the sulfotransferase and uh, minoxidil becomes more active. So you see more hair growth. So I use there on this series minoxidil sulfate, which is the, the active form. It doesn't require the sulfotransferase or the follicle or the body. Uh, here in the US, currently, we don't have minoxidil sulfate. That's not part of the U USP list. So we have only minoxidil base, uh, either in the oral form or uh, also injectable for compounding here. Uh, it's only minoxidil base. Um, we hope in the future to have minoxidil sulfate. So the problem with minoxidil base is that it, it requires the body to activate to, to activate minoxidil, right? Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, uh, well, anyways, I think this is actually a pimping bell thing. I think understand. you're right. Yeah, I was waiting for quick. the bell too. Sorry, I was just yeah. so like mystified by this process that I got I got too excited about the science. So, but you are correct. This is a bellworthy moment. So in this case series here, there were, I think, was it 15 patients who were being treated for angiogenetic alopecia, and they were also taking minoxidil and finasteride, and then you did this tattooing technique every month for three months, and the short story is they got better. I would say overall yes. it looks like they got a little bit better, not like a ton, but a decent amount, and then you did these also post hoc analyses that the technique worked better on patients who had vellus hair at baseline versus if they didn't have any any vellus hair, presumably any hair in that area at all. And it also worked better on patients who did not have obvious scalp photoaging compared to those that do. I'm going to guess that in general, most of our stuff that tries to regrow hair works better if they have vellus hair and no photoaging. And this yeah. is presumably more evidence for some other phenomenon that has been observed. Yes. Uh, so what we could observe here is basically reversal of miniaturization. You know, some hair specialists, they don't call miniaturized hair, velvet hair. I don't know why they, they think velvet hair is, is just the hair on the face or on the forehead. Uh, but I, I like to call velvet hair because it's just how you see the hair. It's in like, just like an alopecia, we had a trials. We don't account for velvet hair when it starts to regrow. Uh, also, the intermediary hair, which is kind of between the vellus and the terminal hair. Uh, uh, so uh, there's also this terminology, which I think is also pimpable. What kind? What kind of hair is there? There's the vellus, which is peach fuzz. There's the intermediary, which is between the peach fuzz and the terminal hair, which is real hair, the hair we see from far away. And we want to get out everybody to have terminal hair, right? Mm -hmm. The miniaturization is actually the transformation of terminal hair into miniaturized hair or vellus hair. I like to call that vellus hair. Um, and then uh, here's the thing. In the past, we had no evidence that anything we had could reverse the miniaturization. That means finasteride is basically a medication to preserve hair or to stop the miniaturization. And... Well, here, here's what I think is interesting. We're, we're living at this age of alopecia now, the alopecia era. We have a supplement now in the JAD, right, about alopecia this month and uh, about alopecia riata that is now treated. But it is the first time in history that we're seeing people who are supposed to be bald with a head full of hair. I mean, about androgenetic alopecia. So see, now we have people who started their finasteride one when they were 20 and now they're 40 with a head full of hair. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of those. Uh, I was certainly supposed to be bald. Uh, I'm 43 now. Uh, my brother too, he also has a, has a head full of hair. And we started endogenetic alopecia very early when we were 14, 17. And uh, we started uh, finasteride back then was uh, there were some preliminary results before Propecia was even FDA approved. We we're splitting the Proscar tablet. So so now we we see the for the first time in history patients who we started early preventing AGA. But we did we had no we don't have real evidence on articles of reversal, right? or 
getting a picture of the scalp with peach fuzz and then another picture after three months or four months with the peach fuzz becoming terminal hair. Mm -hmm. We never had that before. So I think this is the first article that shows this. And, mm -hmm. and what, what's interesting, look, you, you were one of the blinded evaluators there, right? You were. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. You're assessing the salt core on the top quadrant. And uh, thanks. You did very well. I know your, all your scores. You were always uh, with a good reading there. Um, and uh, I don't know if you, if you noticed there where you're evaluating. Let's see, some, because it was all scrambled, you were, in, let's see, before and after pictures, right? But uh, there are some cases that were really impressive. Like Yeah, and the picture you've got in the article is a pretty impressive one itself. Mm -hmm. And just to yes. clarify, the tattooing was with this minoxidil sulfite plus some dutasteride. And mm -hmm. if I don't have a specific tattoo device in my clinic, but I think to myself, oh, this sounds kind of cool. Maybe I can mix up some minoxidil, not sulfate, unfortunately, and dutasteride. Can I just like smear it on somebody's scalp and then use my microneedling device over top? Or do you have to have like a specific tattooing device? Great question. Great question. That's not exactly tattooing. Let, let's imagine this. If you painted the scalp with black ink and they just rolled or get, got a pen that is like a toy tattoo machine, like doing back and forth, what would happen? You would tattoo a little bit, almost nothing. Let's say if you're one hour spreading and then you wiped everything off, you'd see a little shade of gray, kind of like, uh, maybe I can see something. <laughs> I don't see the, the drawing or where I pushed. The, so, so it's kind of random and, uh, and also the needles, they're very far away of those devices. In the tattooing world, we call that the shaders. That's just to make a little shade of gray. Uh, the, the, the cartridges, which have spaced out needles, they're the shaders. Got it? So, so it's like a, the worst shader in the world. If you get a, it, it kind of shades, you have to stay there for one hour. Uh, so there's a difference and you can actually do this in a in a little um, silicone artificial skin and do that and then wipe it off you see oh you kind of see a little gray there while when you get a tattoo machine you draw and you can read the letters you can it's the real artwork it does deposit to the derms so i would say yes it would be better than nothing but it's not exactly tattooing. I, I would recommend, let's say, if you don't have a tattoo machine, you know how to inject transinolone, right? Sure. You're used to just intradermal injections. So you can inject uh, that, that, that way you're sure you're delivering to the dermis. And that's the mesotherapy, or I don't like the, the term mesotherapy. I like to call it intralesional. Intralesional yeah, like minoxidil. Appropriate term. Yeah, we don't say I'm doing nasotherapy or transinolone today. Uh, <laughs> right. That sounds fancier. How much does a tattoo machine cost? It's one thousand dollars. The the top of the line, the best tattoo machine in the world. It's one thousand dollars only. And you have Is to like swap out the cartridges. Yes, the cartridges they they cost one to two dollars, and they're sterile. They're disposable. One to really. two dollars. This is like the cheapest medical device approach ever. Yes, it, 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 that's because it's not a medical device. Because if, if they were to to make it into a medical device, then they would have to pay for the lobby, for the FDA, whatever, and also pay for the reps, uh, the advertising, and then it would cost much more. So you're saying we should make that company? <laughs> they have, uh, you know, there are some, some, you know, this is what happened. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not saying that. I think <laughs> we should use tattoo machines as they are, period. And not even trying to transition to medical devices. Fair enough. Well, thanks mm -hmm. very much, Carlos. Um, I think we've taken up probably too much of your time already, but is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know before we let you go? Well, uh, yes, I would say uh, the, the statuary method is applied for many other diseases. That's only AGA. Well, let's see in the future, as more as we have more access to a sterile 
compounding or sterile medications. We can use any sterile injectables with the tattoo machine, maybe for vitiligo, anything that we need to reach the papillary dermis or the interface of epidermis and dermis. That's the right level for the tattooing, not injection. So I hope in the future we'll have more things for like implantus, more uh, FFA, other things. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And yeah. I love Dermosphere. That's the best podcast of dermatology in the world. Oh, you're very sweet. And I hope you have a lot of listeners. Thank you. I'm sure we'll have more after this because of you. (laughs) And we'll have to have you on again because there's a lot I think we could still talk about. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. So, Luke, what do you know about the Netherlands? I think it's in Europe. They're in Europe. It's in Europe. I don't even know the proper nomenclature. Well, the um, the Netherlands is a really cool country. Um, the The people in the Netherlands speak Dutch, so it's one of those places where the name of the language and the name of the country doesn't always have great concurrence. They have a really interesting national ceremony every year where they celebrate their monarch. When they have a queen, it's called Queen's Day. When they have a king, it's called King's Day. And everyone wears orange, which I believe is the national color. I ended up in the Netherlands to see my sister in an opera on accident on Queen's Day, back in, I think, 2010 or something like that. And I didn't know this was happening. So I go into the city and everyone's wearing head to toe orange and there's so many people there. It was very fascinating. But besides exuberant celebrations of their monarch's birthdays, the Netherlands also has something called the BioDay Registry, which is a prospective observational multicenter cohort study that includes patients with atopic dermatitis and those patients who are on dupilumab. And so that allowed for this study to be done which was published in the British Journal of Dermatology. And this was discussing the successful tapering of dupilumab in patients with atopic dermatitis with low disease activity, a large pragmatic daily practice study from the BioDay registry. The primary authors were Lotte Speckhorst and Marli de Graaf. And as I said, they're all out of the Netherlands. The authors wanted to look into the possibility of patient-centered dosing alteration for dupilumab. And the way that they wanted to do this was to use patient characteristics to determine who might be an appropriate candidate for extension of the dosing interval to decrease medication utilization, decrease the potential for adverse events, and also, of course, decrease costs. So in this prospective multicenter study, they looked at adult patients with atopic dermatitis who'd been treated with dupilumab for more than a year. And I think that this is important because previous studies that have looked at expanding the dose interval, so instead of taking the medicine every two weeks, as it is in the package insert, taking the medicine every three or four weeks. Those previous studies have tried to do this after only about 16 weeks on therapy. And there have been subsequent publications that have demonstrated resident populations of memory cells in atopic dermatitis patients that persist past the first six months, even into the first year of treatment with dupilumab. But over time, those populations may decrease and may actually lead to the ability to utilize less medication over time. So this is one of the first studies to look after a year of successful treatment, trying to see if it's possible to increase the dosing interval. For inclusion, the patients had to have stable eczema, so they had to be on treatment for more than a year, and they had to have an easy score of less than seven. So with the easy scores, 0.1 to 1 is um, almost clear, 1.1 to 7 is mild disease, so they wanted patients with mild disease on treatment. 7 to 21 is moderate disease. That's an important category because that's used for inclusion criteria in a lot of studies. 21 to 50 is severe disease, and over 51 is very severe disease. So these patients who'd been on dupilumab for more than a year, who had an easy score that connoted mild disease, as well as an NRS pruritus score of three or so, which was a controlled disease, they attempted to expand their dosing interval. So they found 595 patients that were included in the study. Of these 401 patients, about 67% were successfully trialed on a dose interval prolongation. Of those 401 patients, about 83% of them were able to be successfully tapered to dosing every three to four weeks. So out of those 401, about 334 patients successfully tapered their dosing interval to increase the time between shots, thereby utilizing less medication over the course of their treatment. In the 
period of assessment between January 2019 and June of 2022 for these 401 patients, the estimated cost savings to the Dutch healthcare system was around $4 million. That broke down to about um, $10,000 per patient for that time period, which was about three and a half years or about, and I, I've been saying dollars, I mean euros, my apologies. And so that was about 214 euros per person per month. But the oh, dollar and the euro are roughly equivalent these days, at least for our purposes. So for those of us more familiar with dollars, about $4 million in savings and less shots for our patients. Now, an important caveat as well is that the medication cost is different in the European Union than it is in the United States. So the average cost of a year of diplomat treatment in the Netherlands was about $16,350. In the U.S., it's around $30,000 a year. So there's a cost difference in different parts of the world. And so those cost savings might be a different number, um, depending on how much the medication costs in the place where the person is being treated. Now, so of course, if we can continue extrapolating crazily, then the cost is about twice as much in the United States. So that would mean for a similar number of patients who had similar success, that would mean an $8 million in savings. And that was only for 400 people. Think of all the people we have on dupilumab and all the money we could be saving. Sorry, pharmaceutical industry. Dupilumab is a great drug, but let's not use more drug than we have to. Well, and importantly to me as a person who treats a lot of patients with atopic dermatitis and who has walked through the periods of suffering through some of these families that I help take care of, and I really, I really think you take care of a family when you're taking care of atopic dermatitis, especially in a child. Um, the change in easy scores and NRS scores, which are measurements of the severity of disease, did have like a statistically significant increase, meaning there had some gentle trending toward, you know, worsening of the disease on the disease on the dose interval expansion. But that increase in number, while statistically significant, was not felt to be clinically significant. So it was going from numbers like 2.5 to 3. Um, so 2.5 at baseline to 3.5 after the dose interval prolongation, or then the numeric rating scale of 2.4 going to 3. So we're not having huge changes in patient quality of life, but there is uh, potential for both sparing of medication as well as a sparing of cost. So those are things that we have to look at. And the way I think of it is that that means more patients might have access to the medication. So if you are you know, considering the fact, and this is something I've thought about since this medication class came to fruition, that the, the, this is a medication class that can benefit a lot more patients than, for example, the biologics that we use for psoriasis, because there are a lot more people with atopic disease. And atopic disease is getting more and more frequent, I think, because of modifications to our environment and our lifestyles that have kind of pushed us towards the excess of atopy. There's so many more people who can benefit from those therapeutics that cost containment is something that we have to consider. And one of the things I thought about while reading this article is that those cost savings could potentially be put towards coverage of additional patients who also need this medication, because there are a lot of patients who can benefit from it. As we know, atopic dermatitis is complex. It's heterogeneous. There's a lot of things that all live under this umbrella that we call atopic dermatitis, but any of us that treats these patients knows that there's different versions of this condition, and some of them are very severe and very difficult to control, and some of them are much more mild and more limited. Treating the individual patient in front of you and tailoring the treatment to their target, the treat-to-target paradigm, I think is a very reasonable approach to use to help make sure that the patient is individually receiving the therapy that's best for them and that we're able to be good stewards of this medication that can help so many patients. So the traditional way that Diplomab is given is 600, milli 600 milligram dose uh, as a loading dose subcutaneously, followed by the maintenance dose of 300 milligrams every other week. And this protocol looks at gently increasing the dosing interval to every three or every four weeks. That's that. the dose for an adult, of course. For an adult, yes. Sorry. These are all adult patients. There are different dosing intervals for children. Luke, do you want to go over those? Oh, they're confusing. I always have to look them up, honestly. They're based on weight and also whether or not you get a loading dose, I believe, is based on your age. So it's either 200 or 300 milligrams, either every two weeks or every four weeks. Just look it up. Yes, exactly. I think, and, and you're absolutely right that there is a change in um, the weight parameters. Uh, so for, you know, patients who have, I think, uh, very small patients, like 15 to less than 30 kilograms, it, the loading dose is 600 milligrams. And then um, they have 300 milligrams every four weeks. 
for patients who are a little bit of a different weight, the dosing is also um, kind of altered. So I think that that is uh, coming from the Depixent homepage. What was weird to me, and I'm not sure if this is right, Luke, do the, the heavier children, like 30 to 60 kilograms, actually get the dosing every two weeks like an adult? So, so a child that's very, very small has the loading dose of 600 milligrams, which is higher than the loading dose for the, lar- the larger children, which is confusing. And then they just get once a week, sorry, once a month dosing with the smaller children. The larger children, 30 to 60 kilograms, get the initial loading dose of 400 milligrams, and then they get 200 milligrams every two weeks. So their dosing is very confusing, and I think looking it up is probably easier. Um, children who are over 60 kilograms are basically dosed like adults. So the 600 milligram loading dose and then the 300 milligrams every two weeks. But yeah, I think that that's one of those things. It, it's, I think, also because the numbers don't really make sense cognitively. Like the larger children get the lower do- loading dose, but they get the medicine more frequently versus the smaller children get a higher loading dose, but they get the medicine at the adult dose, but less frequently. It's just a little confusing. Well, I like this article for a few reasons. One is that I think it mirrors what we do in practice. And I think we've discussed it on the podcast before that oftentimes we get questions from our patients or their parents. Am I going to have to taking this forever or is she going to have to take this medicine forever? How long do we do this? And I usually say, well, we don't really know because we don't have the medical data for it. But I think what most of us end up doing is getting our patients looking great, keeping them looking great for a while, possibly a year is a good amount of time, and then try to reduce the amount of medicine we give people. And that reduction in medicines like this is usually spacing the dose intervals further apart, so they get you know less milligrams per month. And I also like that this validates that approach because most of their patients were able to taper down. Like we've also discussed before, we know that in other medicines, some patients need more or less medicine than others. Like if I'm treating somebody with methotrexate, some people need 20 milligrams, some people need 25, etc. So why should it be different for these biologic medications? We know that patients with hydradenitis separativa tend to need more adalimumab than patients with psoriasis, for example. So the trials that found the appropriate dose for most people are really good trials and found the appropriate dose for most people, at least when you start giving them the medicine. But it's not necessarily the appropriate dose for you. So I like this idea of using the least amount of medicine possible to control somebody's condition. Also of interest, when we discussed tralokinumab for atopic dermatitis back in episode 73, there were patients who were able to decrease their dosing interval within that clinical trial and maintain clearance, and even people who were able to discontinue it altogether, which is pretty exciting. And it's tough to know if that's unique to tralokinumab. When you and I were speaking at the Texas Derm Society meeting last year, I Mm -hmm. discussed the trial, and one of the members of the audience came up and said, I wonder if this phenomenon of being able to discontinue it entirely is because in adults, atopic dermatitis might sometimes be a different beast than it is in kids. Maybe it wasn't atopic dermatitis at all, for example. Maybe you were treating allergic contact dermatitis this whole time or some other rash and that just went away on its own. So there's lots of reasons to feel like we should be able to decrease the dose as time and our patients allow us to do so. And I think that this paper also did a good job of identifying characteristics that might predict um, more problematic tapering for patients. So they had a more difficult time tapering patients who had allergic asthma, um, which dupilumab can also be a treatment for, as well as patients that had uh, higher parameters of disease activity before being started on the dupilumab. So the more severe the person was before starting the therapeutic, the less likely likely you would be able to taper those patients off of the drug. And the closer the association was with allergic asthma, especially if they had severe asthma, the more difficult it was to taper those patients. Uh, One of the other points that they touched on was the co-treatment of these patients with topical steroids which are an important part of the therapeutic management of most patients with um, atopic dermatitis. And I think is one of the challenges that you run into managing atopic dermatitis, especially in children, but also in adults. I think that the truth of the matter is that people get tired of putting topicals on their skin. And when it's a child involved, the parents have to like sometimes get the child to 
cooperate, which can be difficult, and there can be some uh, challenges with the utilization of those alternative therapeutics. They pointed out that at the baseline before they started the taper, uh, patients, they had about 30% of their patients in this cohort that used no topical steroids, about 30% used 0 to 10 grams weekly, about 35% used 10 to 30 grams weekly, and only about 5% were using more than 30 grams a week. At the tapering doses, the amount most frequently used was slightly higher than compared with their baseline. So during tapering, they had fewer patients on no topical steroids, but a lot more of them were just using that very small quantity of zero to 10 grams per week. And that was the largest group that was seen in the tapered cohort. So it wasn't a massive topical steroid requirement, but there was some maintenance activity that was needed from a lot of the patients. And I think that the kind of expectation setting, which they also mentioned in the article of how to care for atopic skin, must be reinforced in every atopic dermatitis patient because the barrier is abnormal. It needs to be addressed in daily habitual practice with good gentle bland emollients, appropriate use of topical steroids, and avoidance of irritants. And so I think that that piece of patient counseling and expectation management is very important as you're attempting to do any tapering with these medications. I think all of our goals as um, physicians taking care of these patients with this potentially lifelong disease that can have significant impact on quality of life is to maintain the best control over the condition in a way that minimizes its effect on the quality of life while using the least amount of medication for mostly safety reasons, but also considering uh, appropriate stewardship of this limited resource. And this study was all in adults, but this is how I treat kids as well. And kids, quote, grow out of it sometimes. So I think it makes a lot of sense in that population as well. Also, they become just old enough to put on their medicines themselves. And that makes a big difference, too. You know, I think that this was a thoughtful way to assess this. Uh, I think it's important to do follow-up studies, potentially with a control group, as the authors mentioned, just so that um, monitoring for sort of disease drift over time, people sometimes on long-term therapeutics will either have a gentle worsening or improvement of their condition. Some people may go into remission. So I think that a control group would be a great addition. And this doesn't get into the issue of recapture, which we've discussed once or twice before. It seems to maybe be more of an issue with the psoriasis biologics, but I think it's just largely unexplored for these atopic dermatitis biologics. So if you do taper somebody down or even off of the medicine, and then their disease comes back, can you still get control again if you put them back on the same medicine? Or did they develop antibodies or some other alteration in their humors that makes them somehow resistant to it? I don't think we know the answer to that. I think I'm cautiously optimistic about it, though. I agree. This hasn't seemed to be as much of an issue with the atopic dermatitis drugs as it has been with the psoriasis biologics, where you can kind of burn through some of the different pathway modifications if the patient's trialed on and off of therapy or loses access to therapy because of insurance reasons, which happens more frequently than I would like to have occur. Absolutely. Um, I think that I have actually changed my follow-up protocol for patients who are on psoriasis biologics where I don't follow them up at a year, I follow them up at 10 or 11 months so I can make sure that all of the paperwork and things that have to be done to keep the patient on medication are done before they expire because there's often uh, a more difficult time getting the patient to have continued approval if the approval expires. Well, of course, our patients on dupilumab give themselves shots fairly frequently. Have you ever experienced a poke with a needle that you didn't want? Unfortunately, yes. If you will. I think every I, I don't know if you get to be a dermatologist uh, or certainly a faculty dermatologist at an academic program without getting stuck at least once. Uh, so I want to talk about needle stick injuries. And I was inspired to look at this article because I was doing a you know straightforward skin surgery. I think I was excising a pilar cyst, and this medical student bound for family medicine was rotating with me and poked me in the hand with the scissors that, you know, he was going to use to cut my sutures. And it frustrated me. And so I decided to look into the literature about it. So (laughs) this is from the year 2016. And in 2016, I was a dermatology resident, perhaps getting a different needle stick injury. What were you doing in the year 2016 besides overseeing my residency? Ooh, let's see. I think that in 2016, I was in the Adams Family musical as Morticia Adams, which is one of the favorite things that I've ever done. 
Um, I was teaching dermatology, as as you have mentioned. And oof, let's see what else was going on in the world in 2016. It seems so long ago. Well, I was in... people were listening to Justin Bieber, apparently. The most popular song was <laughs> Love Yourself. And the second most popular song was also by Justin Bieber and was called Sorry. Hmm. And the Bieber the... Top three movies for box office revenue were all by Disney. What a powerhouse. Captain America, Civil War, Rogue One, and Finding Dory. So maybe you were watching one of those. <laughs> Probably. Well, if you were Christopher Risk or Theodore Rosen out of Baylor, you were writing this article about how to prevent needle sticks and what to do if you were to suffer one. Also, Dr. Risk, R-I-Z-K, it's got to be on our list of coolest names at the end of the year, right? Because if he's, you know, in charge of you, then you're under risk management and various other puns could be made. Mm-hmm. If he's in private practice, I hope he's practicing with Dr. Benefit, etc. <laughs> so according to this article, dermatologists and our assistants, like our MAs and nurses, get stuck a fair amount, especially during surgery. 65% of most surgeons reported being stuck within the past year. of them with known exposure to HIV or hepatitis. And so this article lists a bunch of strategies to reduce the risk and then what to do if it happens based on a literature review. So here are just some practical things you can do to decrease the risk that you're going to get stuck. Some of these are fairly obvious. Some of them you might already be doing. Maintain a clean surgical tray with your sharps in specific areas. And then you can consider a suture counter box or foam blocks for needles that you're not using currently. At our institution, there's these little foam blocks and we stick our suture needles in there when we're not using them. It doesn't dull the needle. And I'm sure these foam blocks are super inexpensive. They say never pass a sharp hand to hand. So if I'm going to say, hey, med student, do you want to try suturing? I shouldn't just hand them the needle driver with the needle loaded in it. I should like put it down on the tray and then let them pick it up. Never handle the suture needle or scalpel blade with your hands. This is something I feel strongly about. I have a small heart attack every time one of my residents grabs the needle with their fingers in order to adjust in the needle driver. (laughs) Just use your forceps. I know it's a little awkward at first, but you get used to it pretty quick. And similarly, you don't need to put your hands in the patient's skin if you're trying to like create tension so your needle can come through, for example. You can use forceps or you can use cotton tip applicators. Ergonomics, as you'll recall, is the study of how body positioning can be helpful or harmful, hopefully helpful, depending on what you're doing. So ensure your ergonomics are appropriate, for example, so you're not reaching to try to get instruments off of your surgical tray. In terms of sharps containers, there are big ones that you can step on with a step on a little pedal to open them up. And they have large bore openings, so you can easily drop things in rather than risk missing them or trying to shove your needle in there amid all of the other sharps that are already stuck in there. There are syringes and scalpels with safety devices, and we've probably all seen those. They're a bit more expensive than those without safety devices, but if they prevent a needle stick, which can cost at least $3,000, more, -hmm. of course, if you are exposed to something, then they're probably worth it. Speaking of that medical student who poked me, this (laughs) author say, use trained assistants. The risk of needle sticks apparently increases four times if you have an untrained assistant. But what about our poor medical students? They need like some experience. I think it's useful for them to feel like they can help out with our procedures. What do you think, Michelle? What's the best way to walk this tightrope? I think orienting medical students to safety procedures uh, during their introduction to the department helps. I have had the exact same experience where I've had a a needle driver passed to me needle out um, which was a moment I think that good education and discussion could have prevented. And so I think that reminding the students about safety protocols before the beginning of any surgical exposure is also a good idea. Now, I would advocate for doing this outside of the room because um, patients can be a little bit uncomfortable with the sort of reinforcement of learning in front of them because it kind of telegraphs the inexperience of the person who is observing or um you know, blotting or something like that in the surgical procedure. But of course, none of us would allow somebody to do any part of the procedure that they were not prepared to do. But just for patient comfort reasons and and safety and security, I think that discussing that in private before you go into the room with the student, especially if it's one you haven't worked with much before, uh, is a good way to help sort of at least implant the suggestion in their mind to be cognizant of the sharps that they're handling so that there can be a minimization of risk. Yes, as I have advanced 
in my dermatology age, I have become much more respectful of all of those sharp ends. And I think especially when you're starting out, you're maybe a little bit blasé. At least I feel like I was. And, you know, I start to blame this little medical, not little, this full-size medical student. You know, he's there. He's <laughs> eager to help out. He's got his scissors ready, ready to cut sutures when I need them. And he doesn't know how my hands move when I'm tying a knot because he hasn't seen a dermatologic procedure before. So my hand just, you know, moved and he didn't move the scissors out of the way. And I was looking at the knot because normally that's all I need to look at. And there you go. Mm-hmm. Another piece of advice is don't be rushed because, of course, we all make more mistakes when we're rushed. So if you have a patient who you think is going to be more complicated, maybe take some more time. Consider scheduling them at the end of the day so that you don't feel like you got to finish up to get to the next patient. Similar if you have a patient who has a known communicable disease. Your assistants shouldn't directly blot while a sharp is in the surgical field, but they can hold gauze in a hemostat or something and use that to blot the area. Use properly fitting gloves. Don't recap needles. I've Mm -hmm. been stuck doing this when the needle poked through the plastic cap and stabbed me in the thumb. Mm -hmm. Remember, sharps can be dropped, so make sure you're wearing closed-toed shoes. And of course, you want to be extra careful if the patient has a communicable disease or if you or one of your assistants is pregnant because the post-exposure prophylaxis can sometimes not be safe in pregnancy. And then, of course, good communication, just like you mentioned. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you do get stuck, you wash with soap and water. Don't worry about trying to like squeeze your blood out of it or whatever. That apparently doesn't help. (laughs) You want to report that it happened. Mm -hmm. Obviously, come on, people. But apparently 65% of dermatologists don't report that they got a needle stick. Um, Be mindful of the emotional impact, both on the person who got stuck and other people hanging around. I remember one of my MAs being in tears recently because she got stuck while doing a lidocaine injection. And it's real. I mean, there's real emotions involved. So be sympathetic to that. The communicable diseases we worry about are still the old three standbys, HIV, hepatitis C, and hepatitis B. I remember learning that transmission rates... Um, when I was, you know, studying for the boards or USMLE, and it's still apparently considered the same. So this is probably bellworthy. So the transmission rates, if you get stuck, if your patient has HIV and you get stuck, the rate that you will then get HIV, it's about 0.3%. For hepatitis C, it's 3%, and for Hep B, it's 30%. Those are rough estimates, but it's kind of nice that they're basically an order of magnitude apart from each other, 0.3, 3, and 30% for HIV, Hep C, and Hep B. We should, of course, all be vaccinated against Hep B, so that's nice. Also, there's mm-hmm. treatments now, you know, cure, curative treatments for Hep C, and you know, pretty good treatments for HIV, but you don't want to get any of these. Mm-hmm. And transmission increases or decreases as you might expect. So, for example, if there's visible blood on the object that cut you, the transmission rate increases. If it's a deep injury, if it's a hollow bore needle, you know, like a syringe versus a suture needle, if the patient has a high viral load, all of those increase transmission rates. If it's an old instrument that's been lying on the counter overnight, that's less likely to infect you. Or if you get splashed in the mucosa, that's less likely to infect you as well. Also, not all body fluids are considered infectious. So these authors specifically say that saliva, sweat, tears, urine, feces, vomitus, and sputum are generally considered non-infectious. Except for with urine, which thing? The rat one. Leptospirosis. (laughs) Very good. It is the rat one. But there you go. Urine and feces, non-infectious. So we can all stop washing our hands after using the bathroom. <laughs> it says right here that poop is not infectious. Now, now, now. <laughs> now. This is just for bloodborne pathogens that we might be at risk of contracting with needle sticks. Obviously, there's plenty of other stuff that can be carried in poop. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember fecal oral transmission, my least favorite mm-hmm. mode of transmission. Mm-hmm. So... If you do get stuck, you want to test the source patient for these diseases, preferably with a rapid HIV test, which can give you results in 30 minutes. You probably want to test yourself as well to make sure you didn't happen to have HIV before you got stuck, for example. (laughs) HIV prophylaxis is the big question at this point, and usually the medicines used are raltegravir, tenofovir, and emtricitabine. 
Pimping Bell, you're listening. This could be on a pimp question, like test question sometime, I guess. Mm-hmm. Raltegravir, Tenofovir, Emtricitabine. This three-drug regimen should be continued for four weeks. Obviously, you want to take this if the source patient's HIV status is unknown. Better safe than sorry. This regimen was selected based on minimization of side effects and drug-drug interactions. However, these drugs can still have rare severe side effects and, quote, adverse pregnancy outcomes. Until you know you're not infectious, like until you get the patient's result, for example, you don't want to get pregnant, breastfeed, or donate blood or tissue. That's the story. Um, Needle sticks suck. There are these emotions. I I really got angry (laughs) when I got poked (laughs) by that med student. I kept my cool, I like to think. Um, He didn't seem as sorry as he should have been. (laughs) Um, But in retrospect, some of them are kind of funny. Michelle, do you have any funny gallows humor style needle stick stories? I mean, I have a couple of um, kind of in retrospect now funny ones. So um, I had one resident that improved significantly over the course of their training, but sort of had the the brute force and um, persistence approach to surgery, which uh, did, does not work as well as a well-designed surgical closure. But um, the resident was trying to close this, you know, back um, excision that was just a little too stubby, like the ellipse was too short and it wasn't closing because the ellipse was too short. And I walked into the room, the resident was struggling. So I was trying to like help hold some of the tissue and they just like damn near embedded the suture needle in my thumb. Like (laughs) while they were trying to like move something, they just had it in the other hand. Ah. And so I, I actually remember looking at my thumb with the needle sticking out of it. Oh my goodness! You should have <laughs> got a picture like, of that. Could have suture been trailing down. Needle stick articles. Yeah, the suture trailing down off the back of my hand. But fortunately, this patient was a very like low risk person. We did all the appropriate checking, and everything was fine. Um, I also got a very memorable trough stick injury, which was not so much fun because with the trough stick, you have no idea who the needle was used on so that's What's a trough it, stick a trough stick is the so you mentioned a good kind of sharps container the kind where you can like push a lever and it opens something to drop from above and i think gravity works and the sharps containers that have the kind of cylindrical opening at the top that you can drop the sharps down into are much safer than the kind that has the little flippy tray that kind of gets wedged open sometimes and yeah, i know what you're talking about Mm-hmm. And so there was a sharps container that was too full. And that's always a risk factor for needle stick injuries is having an overfull sharps container. And I'd rolled over a glass slide. So I had all these like bits of this glass slide in my hand that I was trying to protect everybody else from. And I was trying to sort of stuff them into this sharps container. And I didn't see that there was a needle wedged in the trough. And so I got a little poke from that. So I actually had to take the prophylaxis medicines, not a picnic to take those. That was several, several years ago. Everything's been fine. Um, But it was not a super fun experience. And I had a very significant telogen effluvium after taking those medications. I don't know if it was like worrying about it or if it was the medication itself, but it gave me a lot of compassion for people who, you know, go through this experience. I think that... um, the medicines that we have now are so much better than the ones that we used to have. So I'm very grateful that those exist and that the protocols are all in place to, to work. But I agree with your sentiments earlier. Those needle sticks should always be reported. It's your health and your long-term wellness that is potentially at stake there. Appropriate investigation should be done and if possible, uh, prophylaxis given. So, uh, but, you know, there's just an, a very impressive visual to my finger having a tail. <laughs> that was fun. So couple that are memorable for me you can remove the blade off of the scalpel with special blade removers that are like Mm -hmm. little plastic sharps containers themselves which i recommend Mm -hmm. i don't know that i recommend removing them with a needle holder but that's what i was doing in this instance and if you Mm -hmm. are removing them with your needle holder you want to make sure the point the sharp part of the blade is like not facing the same direction as your thumb so Uh. in this case I was using my right hand to take it off because I'm right-handed and the blade was pointing to the right. And then my, I didn't properly grasp the blade, I don't think. So my hand just slipped and the blade just slashed right through my thumb, through the glove. There was plenty of blood. It wasn't this, you know, huh, did it pierce the glove kind of poke injury? It was like, obviously slashed right through. Mm -hmm. But man, those things are sharp. I don't have a scar or anything. Wow. And then there's a story where one of my co-residents 
uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this incident as well. The sharps container like dropped off the mm-hmm. wall where it was mounted and like a yep. number of needles flew out and poked him all over the legs or something. So he got mm-hmm. multiple sharps injuries from unknown sources, which is funny in retrospect because everything turned out fine, but certainly was stressful at the time. Yeah, that was an issue with the um, sharp container not being properly affixed to the wall. And so that is something that you always want to check for. I think a lot of us have the habit, probably bad habit, of kind of punching the sharps container to get the sharps that are in there to settle so that the stupid flippy tray will open back up when the sharps container is too full. I think as a good rule of thumb, if you have to do that, the sharps container is too full and it needs to be changed. Um, but in that particular instance, the resident had kind of done that maneuver to try to settle the sharp so that the tray would flip open, but the sharps container wasn't properly affixed to the wall. And so it fell out and proceeded to shower him with projectile syringes. And again, very grateful that everything was okay there. So very important things with your sharps containers to make sure they're properly secured, that they're not over full and that they're installed in a way that is safe and appropriate. Well, speaking of sharps, we'd like to keep you listeners sharp with continued discussions about updates in dermatologic research. What's next, Michelle? Those of us that are ladies know that these damn sharp pointed shoes are always in fashion for some godforsaken reason, even though feet are not shaped that way. So (laughs) this is a nice little article about narrow toed shoes and toe to toe sign. Um, So this is a letter to the editor, to Cutis, and it's discussing the fact that narrow-toed shoes can have some modification on the nail apparatus and might cause modifications that patients are seeking medical attention for. So they emphasize that macro or micro trauma to the nails can cause or exacerbate chronic diseases, including ingrown nails, onycholysis, which is where the nail separates from the bed. Um, I think I'm saying this right, onychoxis. Is that right? Onychoxis or onychoxis? I don't know exactly the right way to pronounce that. I think it's onychoxis. This is overgrowth and thickening of the nail, which can then become yellow or white and can be caused by trauma, fungal infection, age, or poor circulation. The more extreme version of that, onychogryphosis, which is the ram's horn nail that's thought to be due to slow growth of the nail that creates this yellow or opaque nail that's elongate, overcurved, and has a resemblance to a ram's horn, as well as hallux valgus or bunions. All of these findings on the feet can be exacerbated or potentially caused by micro or macro trauma. The trauma can also break the anatomic barrier of the hyponychium that can create a portal for infection with dermatophytes or other organisms and allow penetration of the nail apparatus. So one of the authors of this paper, the um, chief authors are Nathaniel Jelinek and C. Ralph Daniel III, it's a very distinguished name, so CRD, um, has used a demonstration to communicate to patients how important proper shoe fit is and the way that the shoes might be causing toenail trauma. So they have a nice illustration of this in the article. And since the article's information is copyrighted, I won't um, use their image, but I might get a picture of, of somebody's feet and somebody's shoes so we can show what this toe-to-toe sign is. Uh, But basically the shoe is flipped 180 degrees and placed toe-to-toe with the patient's foot and then sort of overlaid so you can see where the toes are being compressed when the shoe is worn. And that can help the patients to visualize and understand the relationship between shoe fit and toenail disease when you show this demonstration. So they call this toe-to-toe sign. A narrow toe box is usually the culprit for this kind of modification of the toenail or bony anatomy of the foot. And the toe-to-toe sign emphasizes this relationship and serves as a tool to demonstrate how much the foot also widens when bearing full weight. So when you have the patient stand bearing their full weight and then you put the shoe in comparison to that, you can see how um, forces like ambulation and foot strike can damage the nails with a narrow-toed shoes. And this can be even worsened if you're thinking about a high-heeled shoe because that is also forcing the toes forward and having all of the weight of the entire body borne on the ball of the foot and the toes. So proper shoe fit, um, of course, may compete with idealized shoe style. And like I said, these these very narrow-pointed toes of shoes tends to come into fashion far more off, far more often than they are out of fashion, which is frustrating for people who have normal shaped feet. Um, but proper shoe fit, uh, foot strike and toenail trauma can be something that contributes to pathogenesis for conditions that patients seek medical attention for. And I think informing and educating patients about the role that their daily habits play in their ongoing health is important in every disease status. 
yeah, we often have patients come in who say, there's something wrong with my toenails. I think it's fungus. And you're like, uh, I don't really think it's fungus. I think it's just because you're wearing shoes that don't fit right. I mean, that's what you think in your head. You don't mm-hmm. say yeah. that out loud to the patient necessarily. But this sort of demonstrates that even shoes that might look somewhat innocuous, unlike the shoe pictured in this article, um, <laughs> if you actually like have the patient stand, you flip the shoe around and you hold it over their foot, like where the toes are probably in the shoe, oftentimes the shoe's probably just too narrow. And that could be responsible for this onychodystrophy that angers some patients. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, it's not just adults who have funny toes and funny nails. It's also kids. So I want to take us back to the year 2000. In the year 2000. (laughs) I was 20 years old and in college and had no intention of becoming a doctor. This was the famous Bush versus Gore election. People were talking about mad cow disease. Britney Spears was singing, oops, I did it again. (laughs) People, especially myself, were going out to watch the original X-Men movie. Yeah. The most popular baby names were Emily and Jacob. So if you know any 20-year-olds, there's a good chance their names are Emily or Jacob. What I about like you, it. Michelle? You want to tell us what you were doing? I th- I was also in college. Um, I was d- doing pre-med studies and doing research on transgenetic cotton. So I was um, speed reading all of the Harry Potter books. While I was waiting for my experiments to finish as I was studying transgenic cotton, I was so cool in the year 2000. I mean, Sounds come like. on. Yeah. <laughs> so this is out of the journal Pediatric Dermatology. And this came to my attention with the recent Pediatric Dermatology meeting. And it was just an entity I had never heard of before. So even though it's been reported for at least 23 years, decided it would be worth going over. The authors include Bianca Maria Piericini and Antonella, Antonella Tosti out of Italy. I love Antonella Tosti is one of the most lovely human beings in our specialty, and she's a thought leader for hair and nail disease, and also just a really kind human being. She's helped me work on getting a a wig for one of my patients with severe alopecia following lupus. I'm very, very grateful for her contributions to our field. And this just describes this entity called congenital hypertrophy of the lateral nail folds of the hallux, which is something I feel like I should know about as a pediatric dermatologist. And it describes seven patients with this condition. It's usually congenital, as the name implies, or it appears shortly after birth. And the patient gets hypertrophy on the great toe, near the nail, on the medial side, medial lateral nail fold. So, you know, your great toe, imagine your great toe, possibly even look at it. It's got a (laughs) nail. And then on either side of that nail, there's the lateral nail fold. There's one on the medial or internal side of your nail. And there's one on the lateral or external side of your nail so in this case the hypertrophy is of the lateral nail fold on the medial side and then this hypertrophy overgrows the nail plate often creates a little bump or a lip and the nail can then become ingrown which causes inflammation and pain sometimes in this series most of their patients who are symptomatic responded well to mupiracin and clobetasol daily for two to four weeks though a couple of their patients did require surgical correction of the soft tissues because that wasn't good enough Most of the patients in this series and those reported in the literature experienced spontaneous regression or significant improvement after a few years. So you can tell parents the good news there. Several cases were also associated with congenital malalignment of the great toenails, which we discussed in episode 65. Usually in that condition, it's another sort of congenital condition where the great toenail is deviated, usually laterally. And then if it ingrows, it usually ingrows on the lateral slash external side rather than the medial slash internal side, which happens with this congenital hypertrophy of the nail fold thing. And then several cases were also associated with coilonychia. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all. Anything else you want to say about this one, Michelle? I thought it was a nice reassurance that most of the time this condition improves. Um, the conservative treatment protocol with the topical clobetasol and mupiracin is relatively straightforward and easy to engage in. I think that um, it does emphasize the physiologic setup that some patients have for chronic onico, sorry, chronic, chronic onychocryptosis, where the ingrowing of the nail fold causes pain and inflammation. And, you know, it was nice to kind of see the, the longitudinal course of the condition. Well, one of my favorite parts about being a dermatologist is when I'm the guy who knows. And it's especially (laughs) satisfying when I know right away. 
Like I can certainly imagine a mother or father taking their baby to me. Okay. Mother and saying, <laughs> look, his toenail's not supposed to look like that. What's the deal. And it's so satisfying to say, ah, that is congenital hypertrophy of the lateral nail fold. Cause I know what it is. Cause I'm so smart and it's extra nice when you can say, and it's not a big deal and they'll grow out of it. That's one of the best parts about being a pediatric dermatologist when I can say stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. That is all we have time for. So today we learned about tattooing with minoxidil. Thanks to Carlos for joining us for that one. We learned that we can perhaps taper dupilumab off of our patients if they've been doing quite well for a year and save everybody some money and some sticks. And speaking of saving ourselves some sticks, we talked about techniques to not get stuck inadvertently. We talked about the toe-to-toe sign to convince your patients that they're wearing the wrong shoes. And we talked about congenital hypertrophy of the lateral nail fold of the hallux. Thanks to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks to our members of Team Dermosphere who help us out very much. Thanks to Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kuseki, Eleonora Marcacci, Michael Birdsall, Angie Wong, and Lara Dela Cruz. You guys do a lot to keep this podcast going. One thing you do is maintain our social media accounts. So listeners, if you want to find us, you can do so on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is another good way to get out to reach out to us and also to find our entire archive with links to all of the original articles. Also recall that we have some video content these days on the website ViewMedi, V-U-M-E-D-I. You do have to make an account to get in there, but after you make the account, you can go in and you can watch Dermosphere videos and lots of other videos as well. Thanks again, listeners. It's been great hanging out with you as always, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.